I haven't had a chance to meet you. My name's Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here at Central City, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited and uh, humbled to be able to share some thoughts with you this morning. Before we jump into that, will you, uh, will you join me in prayer? God, we come before you, and we are thankful that um, before we um, came here this morning, you were already present, and that you were often working in mysterious ways without us knowing it. We ask that you would, in fact, come and speak to us um, and to this community um, that's growing and that um, you would work within our lives in ways that we would never think or imagine. In your name we pray. Amen. There was uh, this professor one time who was teaching a group of church leaders, uh, a group of pastors, and um, he, was, he was very old. And um, he had seen uh, just many, many years of ministry, of working, um, and uh, he was told that he almost couldn't even hardly stand. And at one point during the lecture, he actually had to sit down, and some people had to help him back up because he had kind of almost collapsed. And uh, so he was teaching, though, on, on the person and work of Jesus and how Jesus did ministry. And, and Jesus' ministry was, um, was all about relationships. He invested in a few people who in turn could invest in a few others. And he lived life with them, and he poured his life into them. And when he encountered needs in the city uh, or in the community, he, he, he met them. And so he would feed the hungry, and he would free the captives, and he would love the unlovable and be in relationship with the outcast. But, but not in this sort of grand systematic level, just one person at a time, investing in a few people who in turn could invest in a few others. And to be more specific, he invested in 12, um, just 12 people, 12 people who would eventually lead the church, 12, that's it. Uh, that's how Jesus did it. He, uh, he didn't build any buildings. Um, he didn't hire any staff. He didn't run a marketing campaign. Uh, he didn't have uh, church musicians. He just gathered 12 people and for three years invested his life in them. And this old professor was explaining all of this and then he looked over the edge of his glasses and he looked at all of these pastors and church leaders and when I do that I can't even see you guys. But he looked over and he said, But we try. Um, uh, the church thinks that if we just had better worship, uh, better music, better teaching, better entertainment, better programs, better media, better marketing, better whatever. I mean, even this morning, um, our average here has been around 80. And this, you know, we have a lot of young families. They're all traveling. And they're, you know, so there's a lot of happy parents this weekend um, because that's where they're all at. And, uh, but I look at the room and it's a little bit smaller. And so my mind automatically starts clicking in. I was like, all right, what? You know, let's do another mailer and let's do another, let's do some more Facebook ads. And so we do, we think we can improve on Jesus' model. And so I was thinking about this. Um, he ends this, the whole professor ends this conversation. He says, he says to the people, he says, if you invest in a few who in turn can invest in a few others, and that's all you do your whole life is invest in a few people who then can invest in a few others, you will have lived a life worth living. So I was thinking about this. And I love Jesus' model. 
Um, I love it because he didn't worry about church budgets or buildings or uh, conference grants or uh, he just focused on 12 people. And I recently tried to imagine what this would look like if we had launched our church like Jesus launched the original church. Um, and we just, for three years, focused on 12 people. And I was thinking about that, and I think I would be all about doing ministry like Jesus except for one, one issue. I'm not a fan of being homeless. And when you really play with the numbers, Jesus' ministry model was possible. I don't know if you've thought about this. Because he was homeless. I mean, imagine, imagine, that I, imagine Jesus went to his conference and asked for a grant, and this is how he did it. He said, okay, conference, I'd like a grant. What I'd like for you to do is pay my salary for three years, and during those three years, I'm going to work with 12 people only. And the conference would be like, uh, 12 people? And Jesus is like, well, I mean, eventually, really only 11. And he's like, 11? He's like, well, yeah, one of them's going to betray me, but the other 11 are going to turn out just fine. You see, this, this probably wouldn't get funded in, in, our, in our current church context. So you know, growing up, we, we always had those what would Jesus do bracelets. Did you guys ever remember that back in the 90s? So in high school, we had the W. But you know, in all of my high school conversations around what would Jesus do, no one ever brought up living outside. What would Jesus do? Well, not live in your house. That's what he would do. He would live outside. In fact, Jesus said at one point, he says, um, uh, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, now I will be honest with you, I would be willing to live outside. In fact, I know some people who are going to live outside this winter for one night just to have solidarity with the you know, dozens and dozens of people who do live outside. And I'm tempted to go with them, although it terrifies me. But I'd be willing to live outside if, if two things were different. One, Jesus did live in a warmer climate. I mean, we've got to give him that. Right? And, and, like, he didn't live in the Midwest. And he gets, it does get cold in Israel. I was in Israel, and it even snowed when I was there because I was in, there during the winter. But it didn't stay cold, and it didn't get nearly as cold. So if that was different, I'd be much more interested in it. And, too, if I didn't have a wife and kid. You see, I mean, that adds all kinds of complications, doesn't it? All of these additional responsibilities, which is probably why Jesus was single, probably why Paul said you should remain single, and why almost every church planning movement of all church planning movements throughout the history of church planning movements have been led almost predominantly by single people. Because as soon as you throw a family in the mix, it becomes much more tricky. So Jesus, though, he was able to do the ministry that he did in part because he wasn't concerned with a 501k or a pension or the weekly offering or his salary or paying his cell phone bill. And to really follow Jesus' example, we'd almost have to do the same. Because that's what it takes. I mean, what it really takes to live like Jesus, give up our home, give up our job, give up our source of income, and just focus on a few people and invest our life in them completely and move from town to town ministering to whoever we come across the lame, the sick, the hurting, the broken really when we think about it living like Jesus becomes really hard and yet I think we should try and while I will never be able to live just like Jesus <laughs> the question I need to ask is whether or not not whether I've arrived but am I headed in the right direction Am I becoming more like Jesus? In other words, am I adding more and more clutter to my life 
so that relationships become more and more difficult, that's the wrong direction to head. Or am I removing more and more clutter? Am I removing more and more subscriptions and bills and, and responsibilities so that I have the freedom in my life to really invest in other people's life change? So we've been talking about um, how God wants to lead change in our life, in, in our church, and in the city. And this is how Jesus led change in all of these areas. He invested in a few people who could invest in a few others, and he met the needs of the city when he came across them. And friends, you can't improve on Jesus' model. So as we've talked about this, we've been looking at one of Paul's letters, uh, to the letters to the Roman, his letter to the Romans. And uh, we've worked our way through the first eight verses, and today I'm going to pick up where Alyssa left off. Um, and what you'll see is that Paul's instructions line up perfectly, as they should, with Jesus' example um, and what Jesus calls uh, us to do. So if, if you want to turn there, we're going to look at Romans 12, starting with verse 9. Now you can use, if you brought your Bible or you want to follow along on the screen or you want to read along in the events tab in the YouVersion Bible app, you can do that. But uh, I'm not going to, here's the, here's the passage though. Let's bring up the, uh, yeah. So here's the passage I want to look at. I'm not going to read this entire passage this morning. I encourage you to take some time on your own to read the rest of this chapter. It's, it's long. I really wrestled with that because it, there's a lot here that I wanted to cover and I just decided we don't have time to cover it all. What I want to do is kind of take a bird's eye view of this passage. So Romans 12, 9 through 21, it can be divided into two sections. So you see the two colors there. You have the first section, which is the first paragraph. This talks about what it means to, um, for the church to be a community together. How we, as the people of God, treat each other. How Christians or followers of Jesus are meant to treat other followers of Jesus. How, how the 12 disciples were meant to live together. It's their code of conduct for their small group, so to speak. And this is important in a number of ways. But one of them is because God is trying to change the world by building a new community. A, what he called a new kingdom that was different from the normal kingdoms and the normal communities of this world. And in this paragraph, he lays out how it's done. And, and to summarize, he simply says this. We should trust God more and more, and we should love each other more and more. And that love should be genuine, and it shouldn't be fake. It shouldn't be hypocritical. It should be real and sincere, and even to the point of caring for those who are amongst us who are hurting. That's how we build the community of God, loving one another. Well, the second section, verse, uh, starting with verse 14, um, deals with how we as Christians treat people who aren't Christians, sort of the wider community, the, the city, so to speak. And it covers um, that other part of Jesus' mission. How does the 12, the, the small group of people following Jesus, make a difference in the community? How do we address the needs of the city? And friends, it basically says the same thing as the first paragraph. We should love people even people who are outside the faith, even those who try to hurt people who have faith, even those who wrong us, even those who push us aside. We should love them, and we will overcome the evil in the world, if you look at the last verse, by doing more and more good. And so we see these two things. One, how do we love each other? And how do we love other people? And I'm not going to talk about either one of those per se. What I want to do is talk about how they connect. Or more specifically, how they intersect. What's the bridge between God's people and the rest of the world? Where do these worlds connect? So in this passage, I think we can find an answer to that answer um, in part. Um, you see, right between these two sections is a simple command. It's a bridge that connects our love for each other 
and those inside the community, our love for the city, uh, as well as those who were uh, in relationship. It's, it's the phrase at the end of verse 13. It's simple, but it's profound, and it simply says this, practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Hospitality. Now, I, I, uh, I, I was a part of a church where hospitality referred to providing free food. Like the hospitality minute. I don't know. Has anyone else been a part of a church where that was the case? Hospitality, it literally only meant food. Well, I'm here to tell you that hospitality is slightly more complex than that. Hospitality is what connects God's community with the wider community. The Greek word for hospitality is this. I'm not going to try to pronounce it um, because uh, I can't. Um, I can't hardly pronounce English words correctly. So I'm definitely, and just for the record, this is just, this is an aside. When it comes to Greek, my Greek professor in undergrad, he was like, here's the thing. There weren't audio recordings in ancient Greek. No one actually knows what it sounds like. It certainly doesn't sound like modern Greek because language evolves. So as long as you say it confidently, that's all that, like, but I can't even say this confidently, so I'm not going to say it at all. But this word for hospitality is actually a compound word made up of two, philo and zonos. Now, philos is a word, um, it's found in this uh, a city's name, if you've ever been uh, to Philadelphia. Philadelphia means the city of, anyone? Brotherly love. Adelphia is sibling or brother, and philo is love, and love, a specific kind of love, a love for friends or a love for family. And here, it's a form of that word, and it basically means friend, love or friend. So the other Greek word is zonos, which means stranger. It's where we get the word xenophobia, which means a fear of stranger, a fear of outsiders, a fear of foreigners. That's where we get that word. So hospitality is a compound word of these two, one meaning friend or friendly love, and the other one meaning stranger, which means hospitality is a love of strangers or treating strangers like you would your friend. In other words, it's all about treating people who are outside your community as if they were inside your community. It's all about welcoming people who are on the outside and welcoming them in and making them feel like they're on the inside. And this is what Jesus does. He has this intense commitment to 12 people, but you could never accuse Jesus of being exclusive. He was fully committed to 12 people. He invested his life in them, and yet he was always treating all of the other people he came in contact with as if they were a part of his clan, part of his group. So think about this in the most practical way uh, possible. Um, just offering hospitality in your home. Hospitality is the art of treating people who don't live in your home. They don't live there, but you're treating them as if they did. That's literally what hospitality means. We invite people into our home, and we treat them as if they are a part of our family. Well, that's what it's supposed to look like. But it, I found that it can break down in a number of different ways, and here's two ways that I've seen hospitality break down. Here's the first one. Some people treat visitors better than their family. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a family like this. They treat visitors better than their family. For some, they might be real jerks to their family. Um, when no one is around, they might uh, be mean to their kids or mean to their spouse or mean to their pets. I've seen this lived out in television shows mostly, 
where there's like arguing and then as soon as somebody comes who's a visitor they put their best face on and they pretend like we're the perfect family so we give guests the treatment that we wish that our family wishes for and some would call this hospitality like we actually call this hospitality like no like we're not a perfect family but we're going to be so nice to the visitors and we call it hospitality friends that is not hospitality that is hypocrisy different. Now, others are on the other end of the spectrum. We treat visitors um, um, better than uh, uh, we treat uh, visitors worse than we treat our families. Maybe we have loving parents or uh, we're loving spouses or we we have a great home and and it's just this beautiful place and, and people are cared for, but we would never let some people be a part of that. We don't let some people enter into that world because they'd mess it all up. Maybe we claim it's because we're introverted or shy or we have healthy boundaries, but this also isn't necessarily hospitality. This is isolation. Hospitality is all about, first, being a loving family, and second, inviting other people to experience that family for themselves. Friends, this is what the church should be. A place where hospitality the way we love each other and the way we show love for the city, which we need to focus on both, loving each other better and inviting more and more people to experience that kind of love as well. Now, my family growing up was far from perfect, but there's one thing that I feel like they might have gotten right, Um, although they've kind of lived into both ends of the hospitality spectrum. um, A lot of times they fell somewhere in the middle. Um, uh, but it wasn't because our family was perfect. In fact, our house was a wreck. Our house was a madhouse. I'm, I'm one of seven kids. One of seven kids. On top of that, my mom babysat for a living in our home. Our small four-bedroom house had seven of her own kids in there and another, I think, seven or ten additional kids. And the worst time of the day, for the record, if you want to see how this plays out, is between three and five, because it was between three and five when the kids, um, the older kids came home from school, both us and those who were being babysat, and the parents picked up the kids. That was a madhouse. And on top of that, anyone who wanted to come over was welcome at my parents' house. And they did nothing to give people special treatment. In fact, my mom would often say, um, if someone was thirsty, she would say, okay, well, I'll show you with a cup next time you get it yourself. Like I'll, the first time, I'll show you where it's at. The second time, you've got to get your own drink. We have too many guests here. It's subtle, but profound, because what I found it do with my friends in particular was just like that, they were part of the family. And it wasn't because they got this sort of special treatment other than the special treatment was they could belong. And it got real messy. Because that also meant my parents didn't really hide the fact that they argued when my friends were over. And my mom was like, I'm not going to pretend like, I'm like, just pretend a little bit. Like, just, like, go upstairs. That's hospitality, though. Having an honest, real, as loving as possible family and then letting people be a part of it. This hospitality, this kind of hospitality is what I think is going to change the world. 
First, we have to build a community of love and respect, and second, we invite more and more people to share in that kind of community, to treat strangers like friends, including the people who we would least likely invite. I mean, look at this passage. Look at this passage again. Can we bring it up? These are the people that he specifically is talking about extending hospitality to. Those who persecute you, people of low position, and your enemies. These can be summarized into two categories. Those who hurt you, and those who are hurting. Those are the people who are often hardest to invite into your family, into your community, and they're the ones that we're meant to. So as many of you know, my wife and I... um, live in Franklinton, just on the other side of the river. We ended up buying a house there, mostly because uh, God just sort of like opened the door for it to happen. And it was just so clear for us that we had to live there at the time. And, and, and at the time, we knew very little about that neighborhood. Um, it, we knew it was a little rough. We knew it was being developed. We knew that there was, it was a little poor, uh, fairly poor, but we didn't know much more. Well, now we've lived there for less than a year, and we've gotten to know our neighbors, and uh, at least a little bit. And there are just, uh, in Franklinton, there are a lot of people Uh, in both of those camps. There are a lot of people who are hurting, and honestly, there are probably a fair number of people who would hurt us if, if, if the payoff was enough. And there's all kinds of issues that we have to deal with living in this neighborhood. Every day, we drive by women who are working on the street, selling their body to buy groceries, to get by, to get their next fix. And people park in front of our house like every day this last month um, every day someone's parked they walk up to a house they're there for like five ten minutes and they, they get back in their car and they leave I have no idea what they're doing it's a joke I know exactly what they're doing did you know that in Franklinton 60% of residents live below the poverty line um, and that 25% are unemployed which means there's a whole bunch of people who are employed but are still living below the poverty line and that in Columbus, it's one of about 12 neighborhoods that has extremely high degrees of infant mortality. Infant mortality means this, that in Franklinton, along with another, like 10 other neighborhoods, 11 other neighborhoods, there are more children who are dying before the age of one than other neighborhoods in Columbus and in the nation. So between 2011 and 2015, for every 1,000 kids who were born, 15 of them died before the age of, of one, 15. That's twice as much compared to the rest of the county. And so we've been asking ourselves, what does it mean to love our neighbors like we would our own family? What does it mean to love kids in our neighborhood like we would our own kid? Love of strangers. What would it mean to love young families, young mothers, the way we love, the way that I cared for Alyssa when she was pregnant and gave birth. What does it mean to offer that kind of radical hospitality? And how can I do it, by the way, without putting my family at risk? Or at least, I don't want to even say that, like maybe just at a little bit of risk, but not like a lot of risk. Like it still needs to be, still going to, risk-taking mission, there's still risk involved. And more importantly, how do we lead this new community of people to join us on that kind of mission? 
So after moving to Franklinton, our launch team decided that Franklinton would be our local mission focus, that we would strive to love our neighbors, and uh, that we would try to be a place where we could love them into the kingdom of God. And so, uh, just for the record, at this point, we don't have times to, at, at plans to move our congregation to Franklinton. What we want to do is build a ministry in Franklinton, and then maybe someday even have a worshiping community there, and, uh, which would be maybe another campus. But in the meantime, we just want to use the resources that God has given us to be um, the best neighbors that we can be. And, and, and here's the thing. I know that this is why many of you are here. So last week we had a response card where people could sign up to serve, and it included areas on Sunday morning as well as during the week. And a lot of you checked at least one of these boxes. If you want to bring up that, that slide. A lot of you checked one of these boxes. But two-thirds of you checked the box for local missions right there at the bottom. Like two-thirds of our congregation wants to make a difference in the city, specifically in the area of Franklinton around issues of poverty and brokenness. I mean, many of you are here because you want to love the city like you love your friends and like you love your family. You want to extend that kind of hospitality to those who are on the outside. Now, if you don't know it, um, we, uh, we inherited an old church building. Um, it's a large building with about 12,000 square feet. Here's a picture of one of the hallways. Uh, here's the, the sanctuary. It's got an old part, and then it has a newer part, and by newer I mean 1970s. Here's a fellowship hall, about 17,000 square feet. Here's one of the stained glass windows. And we started asking this question, what if instead of this being a church building, what if we turned it into a community center for the neighborhood? Like, what if we converted this building into a community center? And so instead of calling it, this was known as the Avondale United Methodist Church for like 100 years, we're calling it the Avondale Place. And that seems like maybe a subtle change, but it's actually made a world of difference. As we've begun in conversations with our neighborhood about the possibility of this being a new community center, people from all walks of life, many who want nothing to do with the church, want to be a part of what we're doing. So we already have Women Crafting Change, we have the Columbus Coalition for the Homeless, and a number of other churches and organizations who are renting the space, planning to rent the space, planning to move in, planning to use the space. And it's, and it's all like really exciting, but that's not all. In 2018, we're going to be partnering with the city of Columbus, and we're hosting what they call a Community Health Connector. So it's a program that the mayor's office created out of this organization that they created called Celebrate One. It's a simple program. Here's how it works. We hire someone from the neighborhood, and then the city reimburses us for their salary. So it doesn't cost us anything. And then the city also pays for their training at OSU. And when they've gone through the screening and the training, they will work for us 30 hours a week, for, uh, as a community health connector, which means they'll go into the community and this will be their primary goal. They'll spend 30 hours a week trying to meet the families of young mothers and connect them to two things. One, connect them to some sort of community, which I think a you know, church could potentially offer. Or, and two, connect them to the resources that are already available in their community. So we've already, we've interviewed people, we've extended a job offer to someone, and assuming they pass the screening, the background check, and they complete the training, in 2018, we're going to have a part-time community health connector working 
out of our community center in Franklin. That's exciting. Yeah. We're 10 weeks old. And we're already partnering with the city around one of the city's most significant areas to try to make a difference. And friends, here's the thing. That's not all. So we also recently applied for another city grant. And I have no idea if we're going to get it. I think we actually have a chance. But in the process of applying for it, which is why I share it with you, we had to gather letters of support. So I don't know if you're familiar with grant writing, but we had to gather letters of support in order to, to submit the grant, and we had to gather partners. And so we went to some of the most significant organizations we could think of in Franklinton and started a conversation around the Avondale Place and the community center and what we wanted it to be and how it would be a drop-in center where people could get connected to the resources, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you have to remember, it has been the Avondale United Methodist Church for 100-plus years. The neighborhood has known it as a church where a small group of Christians gathered, and that's it. So we have a hundred years of tradition and experience to overcome in this neighborhood. We had five months. We've, been, we've had five months to kind of cast a new vision. So we went to these organizations. We didn't think anything would come of it. And in a matter of one week's time, after only five months of recasting vision, we were able to get some really significant letters of support, including letters from Mount Carmel, Homeless Families Foundation, Gladden Community House, Franklinton Board of Trade, and, and I was reading through them the other day, and one of them I, I, uh, said this, it went as far as to say this, it said, Gladden is committed to supporting this project in every way we can. We will provide comprehensive, ongoing, supportive services to the Central City Drop-In Center participants so they will remain self-sufficient residents in our community. We are very enthusiastic about this project. I'm just like, what is going didn't even exist five months ago. We are beyond excited for what God is going to do through this. And this might sound all very impressive. And that's what worries me. I tell you this and you might think that, uh, well, we must have, we've got things under control. <laughs> that we're hiring the work out. That we have enough programs in a place, um, in a place that we don't need you anymore. As if programs are going to change anything. And maybe, just maybe, as you hear about all of this stuff that's sort of developing and boiling up, you're thinking, well, then they, they, must, not need, they must not need me. The truth is, is we need you. Everything we do as a church here in Grandview, Franklinton, other places in the city is designed to create space for people who are following Jesus to be in relationship with those who aren't yet, to build authentic relationships and treat them like insiders, even if they might be outsiders. In other words, none of this replaces the work of Jesus because you can't improve on Jesus's model. So we need people like you to invest in a few people who in turn can invest in a few others. And that's not going to happen by simply checking a box on Sunday morning. Because the work that we do is going to take, can I just be honest with you? The work that God has, has, has kind of brought into this community is, is, is more complicated and more difficult and requires more time than we currently have as people. We are too 
busy with work, school. I mean, we can't accomplish it with our current schedules. So it goes back to this original problem. Jesus was able to do so much because he left behind the busyness of life. He didn't have to have a job. He didn't have to have a home. He didn't have any kids to take care of. And while we can't be that radical because we have some of those responsibilities, I still think that we should be moving in that direction. And it can look a lot of different ways. I recently met a pastor. He's a, he planted a church and he's been pastoring and he makes really good money planting this church. Um, partly because he didn't just invest in 12 people but has a, a larger community. And um, uh, but he's, God has been restructuring. His kids are gone off to college, and um, so he uh, and his wife works as well, and so they've been restructuring their life, and they're looking at maybe selling their house and moving some things around so that he doesn't have to be on a church salary anymore, which means he'll be able to be a pastor for people who can't afford a pastor and be able to serve in a neighborhood like Franklin. So maybe it means spending time in your life, working towards even a 10 or 20 year goal of being debt free and learning to live on less and less so that you can move from a full-time position to a part-time position and use your extra work hours to invest in the community. Or maybe it means working a little bit more and spending more time with the people at work and investing in those relationships and giving the extra income to people who are working in the community. Or maybe it means instead of having your child enrolled in every sport every season, you take one of those seasons and you don't enroll them in a sport and the evenings they would normally be at practice you take them to volunteer at a community center or a soup kitchen or an after school program or maybe you don't give up sports at all instead you use your love for sports to invest in a sport program but one in a school system that can't afford it maybe it means giving up a hobby and replacing it with community service, or maybe it means using your hobby for community service. Maybe it means watching TV less. Maybe it means watching TV more, but you invite your neighbors over and you watch it with them. I don't know. Maybe it means giving up your smartphone and going back to a dumb phone. This one's hard for me. I don't want to give up my smartphone. You know how much money it would save if we gave up our smartphones and just had like, you know, the phone call phones? Like where you just, you called people and then texting involved like lots of buttons. Think of the amount of time and money you would save without your smartphone. I'm talking to myself right now. I can't calculate. I can't count that high. Where could you put it? Where could you invest it? Maybe it means knowing less people so you can know fewer people more deeply. Or maybe it means being less protective of your space and having people over more often in your home. Maybe it means not having people more often in your home but actually going where people are already. Maybe it's something else. I'm not sure what it is for you, but I do know this. I think we should be heading in that direction. So I want to challenge you to think about it. What can you change in your life that would put you in a position to help God change the city? Now, I'm, I'm not asking you to give up everything. I'm just asking you one thing this year. One thing that would enable you to partner with God to change the city for better. One thing, what would it be? So when you came in, you should have received not only an update and a connect card, but another small card. And on it, it says this. It says, in the coming year, I'm going to give up blank in order to blank. 
I want you to challenge you to think about this. How would you fill this in? What would be your thing? What can you give up so that you have the room and the margin in your life that you can actually help God do something fantastic? So I'm going to actually invite the band to come up as we prepare for our last song. I'm going to ask the band, and I didn't give them a heads up, but if you guys could just maybe play some, you know, just, you know, what is it called? Ambiance. Yeah, just to give us some ambiance. A little background music. While I do, um, before we do our closing song, I want you to wrestle with this. Now, for many of you, you're going to need to sit on this. You're going to need to pray about it. You're going to need to wrestle with it. And if that's you, I want you to take your time. Take this home. Put it in a safe place. Think about it. Pray about it. Don't jump to, you know, count the cost. And ask God. And God will reveal to you what it is that God wants you to do differently. What God wants you to give up so you have time to do something else. And it might not be an immediate thing. It might be something that has to happen 10 years from now. I know when I think about becoming debt-free for me, like this isn't an immediate, I can't just decide to be debt-free. Like this is a process. But as I move towards that, I'm able to do more for God. So take some time to think about it. Now others are here and you know exactly what it is that you need to do differently. Maybe it's been on your heart for a while, but you haven't put it into words. If that's you, don't hesitate. Write it down. Take some time. Wrestle with it. How can we move become more and more like Jesus. I'm just going to give you and a band, you just want to give them like a minute or two to think about that and then invite them to stand. We'll do our closing song.